0: Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis at the start of a brand new month, Tuesday the 1st of August. Welcome to Money Talk and thank you for supporting this podcast over the past four months. We're now regularly among the top 20 most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, activity in China's manufacturing sector has fallen for the fourth straight month. China's official manufacturing PMI rose to 49.3 in July from 49 in June, beating market estimates. Growth in China's services sector has hit a seven month low. The official MBS non manufacturing PMI for China declined to 51.5 in July from 53.2 a month earlier. And while pointing to the seventh consecutive month of increase in services activity, the latest result was the softest pace in the sequence and the softening pushed the composite PMI down to 51.1 in July from 52.3 in the previous month. That's the lowest figure since December 2022. Hong Kong's economic growth slowed sharply in Q2. Hong Kong's economy expanded 1.5% year on year in the second quarter, far lower than market forecasts of 3.6% growth and easing from an upwardly revised 2.9% advance in the previous period. The slowdown in GDP was driven by a smaller increase in household spending and the decline in government spending and fixed investments. Growth in the eurozone economy beat expectations in Q2 and inflation slowed in July. The eurozone economy grew by a third of a percent in the second quarter after a flat first quarter and that exceeded economists forecasts for a 0.2 percent expansion. The annual inflation rate in the eurozone slowed for a third consecutive month to 5.3% in July from 5.5% in June. That was in line with market forecasts and it was the lowest reading since January 2022. The core inflation rate, which excludes prices for energy, food, alcohol and tobacco, was unchanged at 5.5%. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Allcroft, Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate Investment Banking, And our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and also take a look at my daily
1: newsletter.
0: U.S. stocks marked the fifth consecutive month of gains in July and the longest such run since the summer of 2021. The S&P 500 edged up 0.2% to close at 4,589. For the month of July, the benchmark index rose 3.1%. The Dow added 100 points, or a third of a percent, to settle at 33,560, taking its monthly gain to 3.3%. And the Nasdaq Composite rose 2 point, uh, 0.2% to end at 14,346. It registered its fifth straight winning month for the first time since April 2021. The US dollar index rose 0.2% on Monday but was still down 1% last month. That's its second straight monthly decline as US inflation shows further signs of cooling. The most pronounced selling activity was in the Japanese yen after the Bank of Japan expanded the band within which the Japanese 10-year government bond yield can fluctuate, but it did signal it wasn't the start of a campaign of tightening monetary policy. And the BOJ stepped in on Monday, buying bonds in an unscheduled announcement to stem the rise in yields. On Monday, the dollar rose 0.8% to 142.24 Japanese yen, and for the month, the yen has weakened by 1.4%. China's renminbi saw its best monthly performance against the dollar in six months. In onshore markets, the yuan closed 0.1% higher Monday at 7.14 and a quarter renminbi versus the dollar. And that takes its gains for the month to 1.5% after the People's Bank of China deployed some direct and indirect support measures to fend off downward pressure on the currency. Mainland stocks rose for the second straight session as investors reacted to the latest Chinese economic figures. The Shanghai Composite climbed half a percent to 3,291 after rising above 3,300 earlier in the session. And for the month of July, the index is up 2.8%, taking its gains for 2023 so far to 6.5%. Hong Kong stocks rallied for a third day. The Hang Seng Index climbed 162 points, or 0.8%, to 20,079. The index rebounded 6.1% in July, but it's up just 1.5% for 2023 so far, making it one of the world's worst-performing equity markets this year. The tech index surged 1.9% Monday, adding to a rally of 4.4% last week, which has put the index in a new bull market after it rebounded more than 20% from its recent low in May. And this morning, futures markets are pointing to gains of 80 points. That's 0.4% for the Hang Seng at the Open. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com.
1: Every Monday to Friday,
0: this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis. We have a panel of guests scattered far and wide over the world this morning. Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant, definitely here in Hong Kong. I can see him myself. Morning, Stuart.
2: Good morning to you, Peter. Yes, definitely here looking outside at the bright sunny weather that um, we've been missing for a while.
0: Yeah, lovely. (laughs) And also (laughs) with us here also here in Hong Kong, Michelle Lam, who's Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. Morning, Michelle.
1: Hey, good
0: morning, Peter. And over in West Virginia this morning, I can see him sitting in his log cabin right now with the fire raging in the background. Barry Ward, our US economics correspondent and writer and broadcaster. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. And let's start with uh, China's manufacturing activity, China's official manufacturing PMI. Uh, it rose to 49.3 in July from 49 in, um, in June and that beat market estimates of 49.2. It's the fourth straight month of contraction in factory activity, but it is the smallest decline in that period. New orders, buying activity all fell, but at a slower pace, and export sales continued to drop. Employment decreased for the fifth straight month, with the pace of job losses accelerating, but business sentiment improved to a four-month high. The official MBS non-manufacturing PMI for China, that declined to 51.5 in July from 53 point two a month earlier while pointing to the seventh consecutive month of increase in services activity but it was the softest pace um, in the sequence. Michelle can you take us through these numbers for us the two highlights seem to be the slowdown now in the services um, side and manufacturing still in contraction what are your thoughts?
1: Yes so first of all um, on the services uh, PMI that was uh, that was disappointing uh, because we would have thought that the reopening recovery could uh, continue to support the service sector momentum. But uh, clearly, um, even though we've seen that uh, the from the news that it seems that the traveling seems to pick up uh, even more in July, it's not enough to uh, really leave the overall service sector. And I think for the non-manufacturing, a big component uh, for the slowdown is that um, for the property sector, uh, we continue to see the sales uh, tanking, and that uh, definitely has affected the Construction the activity as well, which is the part of the components in the non-manufacturing PMI. Um, so, I think um, tackling the property sector weakness is really the a primary task for the government in order to stabilize the growth momentum. And on the modern manufacturing side, I think um, it seems that maybe we've seen the worst uh, of the manufacturing contraction. Um, it's not doing great, but I think that uh, in the second half of the year, we probably see a little bit of a stabilization in the manufacturing momentum. Um, but the the the, the, envo- the external environment is still not uh, looking well. We don't really expect the global growth momentum to be uh, to be much stronger from here. So I think that's still going to be a drag on the on the exports, and that will still be. Uh, industrial activity, and um, and also the, for the domestic demand, if you look at the consumer demand, the investment demand, I think the uh, it is still very important for the government to boost the confidence of consumers and uh, and the private investments. Uh, but right now, I think um, it remains to be seen that whether all these similar measures that the government has rolled out over the last two two months uh, will really work uh, to reverse the situation.
0: Are you worried that the services sector could slip into contraction now as well?
1: Um, Not so much for the service sector. I think um, the reopening recovery should still be continued, but probably at a slower pace uh, in the second half of the year compared to what we've seen in the first half of the year. But what I'm worried uh, is the property sector. Um, as we know that uh, the property sector is very important for the China's economy. It's one third uh, of the overall economy, including the indirect linkages. Um, but based on what we see in the high frequency data, it seems that the, the sales hasn't really managed to stabilize. Uh, so that if that that's the. If this situation continues, then I think that's going to be uh, imposing further pressure on the property funding, and that will also in turn be into um, the property investments. We have, sh- by the way, already the deteriorated quite a lot uh, since uh, the uh, the peak in late two thousand twenty one. So I think uh, this is something that we should definitely
2: uh, watch out for. I would be concerned about the uh, the, the economy because China is obviously trying. To do lots of different things to maintain or boost the economy in, in many different areas. And it seems to me that we are now at a point where um, a lot of what they're trying to do isn't working or isn't working as well as they want to expect. And the, well, we've had what, 20 odd years of economic growth in China, and um, our expectations are probably far higher then the market is going to be able to deliver. So I think we're going to need to start to think of uh, lowering expectations for the Chinese economy in the, for the next few years.
0: All this talk, do you remember, it wasn't that long ago, there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, that by 2030, China's economy would overtake the US's economy. that That's really not going to happen based on what we're seeing at the moment, is it?
2: Not really, but I think that... Um, and you've got to remember the scale of the Chinese market is massive still, and, and, and ultimately it is about the scale that will be the booster, but it's still not going uh, gangbusters as it used to, <laughs> as, as we should say. Um, I think that there are slowdowns, there are inevitable blockages, and um, Michelle's... Reference the property sector to be worried about. I think we're desperately worried about the property sector. Um, every time we see any any of the major property companies in China talk about their business, it's it's bad news. And um, the the level of debt that is being racked up in the property sector is enormous. It, that will take a lot of resource to to sort out. And I'm not I'm not. T- convinced that uh, China is in a position where it can actually do that.
0: Barry, this is getting the attention of the US, isn't it? Because Janet Yellen has mentioned now recently a couple of times the slowdown in China and the potential effects that could have on the US economy and the global economy.
3: Well, that's true. And I think that uh, any slowdown is manageable if it is within the realm of you know, 3 to 5% GDP growth for the year. As to this question of when China is going to surpass the United States in GDP, they need a 6 to 9% annual growth rate to really boost per capita GDP figures. Certainly, it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen as fast as had been predicted, as you observe, The slowdown in China, I think, may go some distance to explain why After Secretary of State Blinken's visit, there has been a steady stream of American visitors. Clearly, the American market as an export market is very important to the Chinese. And I don't think they want to do anything that jeopardizes that short term.
0: Mm -hmm. Is this starting to look like Japan in the 1990s, do you see any sort of similarities between what's happening in the slowdown in China and what happened in Japan? Well, ultimately, it slipped into deflation, didn't it? The, the economy stagnated for years because the old playbook of relying on exports, boosting infrastructure expenditure, just ran out of steam. It just didn't work anymore.
2: Uh, I don't really think so. I wouldn't... I, I think, you know, we've, a lot of... Countries, A lot of economies learned what not to do with what happened for Japan over the last 30 years. Um, so I don't think that's going to be the way of, of this. But uh, I do think that um, they, the, 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 the political and economic leaders in China are not necessarily talking off the same page at the moment. And I think this is also going to be something of an issue. Um, what, one other aspect, which I think is also quite important for the circumstances right now, is that the um, uh, the, the government is trying to support the B quite significantly. The, um, the, the strength of the B has only returned in the last month or so, coinciding with these many international visits. That that, that they've had, Um, they they can't afford for it to fall too much further against the U.S. or or other currencies. And bear in mind that that this marginal, well, marginal recovery, uh, as it is, has occurred at a time when the U.S. dollar has itself been a little bit weak. So you know, there's a there's a fair bit to be be looked at in in terms of the renminbi. If if it falls very much further, then. Of course, we get back to a point where China's exports will start to be looking quite cheap. Yeah, and that would, of course, be good for growth, wouldn't it? That will be good for growth, but it won't be be well received by the U.S.
3: I I think that uh, one of the lessons that I've heard from China analysts who are speaking at international gatherings over the years is this, that the mistake that the Japanese made to get into that 30-year deflation – was that they allowed the currency to skyrocket as the Americans had wanted in, what, 1985. Certainly the Chinese are aware of that and determined not to make the same mistake. Their currency indeed is on the weaker end of the band. And I think also inflation is low, and that's a warning sign for the Chinese because that, of course, is the Japanese malaise. But I agree with you, Stuart. I think they're a long way... Off. I wonder if Michelle sees it the same way.
1: Um, so I, I do agree with you, Barry. That um, I think the Chinese policymakers, will, a lot of Chinese economists and academics, they study the uh, Japan's deflation experience very well, and they definitely do not want to repeat the the the, the mistakes that Japanese policymakers made uh, thirty years ago to put Japan into the last decade. But um, I think currently the the situation of uh, China is actually a bit different from Japan, um, in the sense that if you talk about the the property bubble, um, of course right now China is definitely struggling the, to to have uh, to to stabilize the property sector. But I would say that it's it's not likely to have a a sudden and sharp uh, bursting of the housing bubble because, actually, if you even look at the house prices in China, it's managed uh, by the policymakers. And if you talk about there is, a a, like, in the worst-case scenario, that maybe people no longer are, are buying houses, I think the policymakers uh, will be very quick to, to ease up the policies as they already signaled in the bill meeting that um, they will be easing up the restriction measures, probably even in the top-tier cities. They will be cutting mortgage interest rates. And I think, uh, worse come to worse, they can even uh, use uh, the government resources to, to buy up uh, some of their properties and use them to convert them to rental properties. So, I think these are the measures that uh, Probably the Japanese policymakers did not really have the um, have the have the resources to do it uh, a long time ago. They haven't even thought about that. So I think um, it's for the property sector. It's probably a matter of time that we can see that it will manage to stabilize. But it's just uh, I think there's still the, some maybe the political hurdle struggle at the at the policy level that they do not uh, they do not want to uh, inflate another bubble. They're worried that they may uh, just make the speculative demand come back. So. I think there's a struggle there, but um, but the situation I think is getting worse and probably the, the policymakers uh, will, will definitely ease up a lot more measures to stabilize the sector. And back to the question on the um, the deflation example, and uh, well, well, in Japan, we also, a like, long time ago, there's also the, the corporate debt crisis that, Resulted into um, the, the many bad loans in the banking system, and the government has not really been quick to to tackle the problem. But for China, if you look at what happened in the two thousands, they actually the, they they are quick to recapitalize the um, the state-owned banks by the issuing the special central government bonds and the, like with the uh, reserve required ratio cuts. I remember back then, and also to recapitalize the, the four banks. So the financial system is actually very controlled in china and i'm not really worried about the kind of uh uh like the the debt triggering uh, a banking crisis that would uh, cause the banks to tighten the credit conditions and the, the banks will just stop lending to private sector the kind of like that crisis i don't think that's going to happen in china but um i mean like right now china i think there's the some some similarities or, or like the risk of inflation that i i'm worried about right now is that um definitely the the households um, the, the private sector, they, the, the confidence, the sentiment is definitely not strong, and I think that is the kind of uh, we, we. There's just a loss of animal spirit that I think. Um, may, maybe we're in a situation that even if we have more uh, monetary easing, and that may still not be able to revive the confidence quickly, and that's going to take time. That's number one, and second is the kind of um, in the past we've always seen the. Uh, um, uh, when the growth slows down, then the government stimulate with infrastructure stimulus, and now that has resulted in a large amount of uh, global, local government implicit debt. And uh, there are now rising concerns about whether these uh, local government financing vehicles can really repay the bad debts. And it seems that the government still seems to prefer the approach of, like, kicking the can down the road, ask the banks to extend their loans to these uh zombie uh, local government financing vehicles. And I think that is just uh, making the capital misallocation problem worse. And I think uh, over the long run, that's going to definitely drag down um, the, uh, the productivity or the long-term structural growth for China. And in that case, I think that's a kind of like a debt a deflation uh, situation that China will run to. And that means that we're going to see lower uh, long-term structural growth for China. Yeah. That- that's still going to like bring with problems of uh, disinflation or even
0: deflation. That's the big challenge, isn't it, Stuart? Uh, China's got to, at all costs, avoid slipping into deflation.
2: Yeah, but I, I have to say, Michelle, I, I think if China does go down the, the route of having, in effect, government buying up property to support the property sector, that's going to send out really negative sin- signals to the rest of the world. I think um, many people will want to run away from that pretty quickly. Um, it's it's not the route forward. It's not the way forward. Um, there needs to be a few major bankruptcies, and that would probably, uh, you know, major bankruptcies would probably bring more support rather than less, frankly, uh, from from an international um, investor perspective, because that's what they're expecting.
1: Yeah, they've actually done that in 2016, but well, mm. basically using government subsidies hand out hand that out to people and allow them to move from the the old houses and move into new houses. In so yeah. this is a way of government trying to provide support so that they can digest the uh, empty houses uh, more quickly. So mm. they've done yeah. that, but just in low city So I, I well, I think it's it's something that on the table and it's the last resort, but it's not maybe I think uh, over the coming months, this kind of uh, measures are not not, not going to be announced, I hope. Um, this a yeah. kind of worst-case scenario uh, measure that they could think
2: about.
0: Yeah. yeah. Let's turn our attention to Hong Kong because economic growth here has slowed sharply in the second quarter. The economy expanded 1.5% year on year. Uh, that was far lower than what economists were expecting, 3.6% growth. It's eased from an upwardly revised 2.9% advance in the first quarter. The slowdown was driven by a smaller increase in household spending and a decline in government spending and fixed investments. A surge in services trade was offset by a sharp decrease in the import and export of goods. Um, On a seasonally adjusted quarterly basis, the economy contracted 1.3%. Economists have been expecting it to expand by 1%. Stuart, what's going wrong? We've really for about three years now, isn't it? Apart from a a couple of little spikes, the economy has just been in the doldrums here.
2: Yes, um, obviously one of the things this volatility in the numbers is what happens when you're seeing Um, changes and um and and adjustments in the post-covid environment clearly um we're still adjusting to having gone through an extended period of no visitors to now having people starting to come back as from the beginning of this year we've had what about 15 18 million visitors now for the year uh, so far um yeah, but Hong Kong is no longer the manufacturing centre that it used to be, and it's no longer the, the place from which many Chinese exports are then re-exported. And we're not, we're not sending things into China as much as we used to either. So I think that's the, these are the areas that... Um, uh, it's particularly in the sort of uh, um, important export of manufactured items that's going to continue to reduce. On the services side, yes, um, that, that is a strong area for the Hong Kong economy. And I would expect that to start to grow um, as it has adjusted for the um, uh, return to a more normal economic position uh, after COVID.
0: Michelle, what's your assessment of Hong Kong? Um, so, so I think the
1: thing in Hong Kong... Uh, I can actually sense that uh, if like on weekends actually there there are not many hong kong people staying in the city but a lot Mm. of people are just traveling abroad with this uh yeah after after covid everyone just want to go traveling but at the same time um when the mainland china tourists uh, come to visit hong kong i think uh, like some of my uh, i spoke to some friends and actually they, they don't really stay overnight um, so I think that's more of a problem, the, like towards the the, the tourism uh, exports and tourism imports. So on the one hand, we have tourism imports that are expanding very strongly, but for tourism exports, actually, I, I my sense is that maybe the the improvement is not. Very remarkable considering that um, there are also uh, news reports saying that maybe Hong Kong is no longer the uh, the, 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 the travelers', uh, the shoppers' paradise, given that um, people's uh, spending the mode has changed. Um, actually, there are also many They're going to Shenzhen, in Mainland China. Yeah yes, going to no, there's there's actually no strong reason for them <laughs> to, to come to hong kong to, to go shopping uh, in for the for the luxury items i think which mm. is one of one of the most popular reason so i think um, that's going to be to be one thing uh, how to increase the attractiveness of hong kong as a tourism spot um and second is also that um, the private uh, investment. If you look at the data, there's also a small uh, contraction. So I think that's really to do with uh, on a cyclical basis uh, how how long the interest rates are going to stay high for here. Because it, as long as it's going to stay high, it's going to affect the uh, in, in investor sentiments to, uh, to 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 make the investments. And mm-hmm. and second is the structural uh, angle. That is the um, uh, uh, how how much the investment sentiment is affected by the, the, the external factors such as the U.S.-China tensions um, and whether Hong Kong can really uh, uh, position itself as an attractive place to invest uh, versus places like Singapore in the long run.
0: Okay. Barry, let's turn our attention to the US. Get your thoughts on the inflation data. I mean, the the gauge of US inflation that Fed prefers is now at a 20-month low. The personal consumption expenditures price index rose 3% in June, down from 3.8% in May. And the core PCE index, is more than expected to a 20-month low of 4.1%. There's getting a, a really strong feeling now, isn't there, that the trend in inflation in the US is downwards and the Fed is getting on top of this.
3: Absolutely. And I think the fact that they rose again last week and that was accepted and applauded by the market is really a sign that the Federal Reserve is winning the battle. There is no doubt about that. They're not going to declare victory because that's not in their playbook. But it seems to me that analysts will increasingly be saying, both on inflation and avoiding recession, certainly on job creation, the Fed has done a masterful job over the last 14 to 16 months. So, yes, I agree with your assertion. All of these inflation measures are very positive. It's a real victory, not
2: just for the Fed, but also for the Biden administration. It's undue- is this what's driving the stock market up, then, Barry? What's that? Is, is this what, what is driving the stock market in the U.S. up?
3: Yes, Being I the, think it is. The support because, is there. Yeah. Look, valuations are, of course, too rich. So that can't explain why the tech sector would be rising at such a phenomenal rate since the first of the year. So there's something else going on here. And I think it is that the United States is going to avoid recession. That's my guess, Stuart. It's all just... Or has avoided recession, and it is unlikely over the next three months.
0: It's odd, isn't it, what the Fed has achieved here, because despite uh, inflation coming down, the labour market is still very tight. What normally happens is that um, unemployment goes up, reduces the demand for goods and services, workers get laid off, that normally leads to the recession and inflation comes down. But the US has managed to get inflation down without that uh, decline in, uh, in employment that you would normally expect to see. You're absolutely right. This is unique. And it's unique
3: particularly because interest rates have risen so much. Um, Obviously, if you're buying a home now, you're paying almost double what you would have paid 18 months ago. And that is a burden. And yet there's a lot of money from the COVID stimulus that's still in the economy. So it is unique. And maybe that's a word of caution because if that money is at some point going to run out then maybe we'll once again be looking at an infl- at a recession risk but so far given the winds on inflation the winds on job creation it looks to me like we're absorbing these interest rate rises that much better than have been anticipated
0: is there also one big factor here it seems that uh, companies are not laying off workers. They're very keen to try and hang on to their workers, unlike in 2020 when they were very quick to lay off people and also after the last recession in 2007-2009, workers got laid off very quickly. It seems that companies will do everything to try and cut costs, use technology more, but hang on to their workers. That's uh, also...
3: With the notable exception of the tech sector, because... If you look at what has happened in the Silicon Valley and certainly in San Francisco, there have been thirty to 50,000 layoffs since the beginning of the year. But that's been absorbed with almost no pain at all experienced by the company, certainly in the terms of their valuation. And you don't see any kind of uh, unemployment problem that has emerged in the Bay Area. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think that um, it's not typical. Now, we've just had a of yellow roadway freight. That's at least 30,000 people directly will be out of work. There's, of course, a residual effect because there are many more people affected. We'll see if that has any impact. We avoided the strike from UPS. That's been good news. So, you know, I hate to sound Pollyannish, but uh, really it looks quite good here in the
0: States. Okay. And Michelle, in just 30 seconds, presumably if if interest rates have peaked in the United States, that's good for us here as well.
1: Yeah, that's good for us, but I think uh, there's some points I want to highlight is that if you look at the profit margins of the uh, U.S., actually, it, it's still the, at the historical, the, the much higher than historical average, which means that actually some companies, big um, the companies, they've actually locked in the low interest rate cost during the COVID period, and right now even interest rates have risen. That has, hasn't really hit them hard, and uh, I think that's one explanation that why the corporates could afford to hold on to uh, not firing people as well much, uh, given that the economy is actually doing okay and with this uh, low financing cost that they had fixed in some time ago. So I think that's a reason to highlight. And yeah, for for Hong Kong, I mean, uh, if interest rates are not going to rise further, it doesn't mean that we are out of the woods yet, but at least uh, maybe the worst is over for, for, for Asia here.
0: Okay, well, that's good news. Thank you very much. That's Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. You also heard our U.S. Economics Correspondent, Writer, and Broadcaster Barry Wood He's over in uh, the U.S. And our Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant, Regular Tuesday Commentator Stuart Allcroft. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Feil, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Christopher Lee, Partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. And later in the show, I'll chat with Dickie Wong, Head of Research at Kingston Securities. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.